Our scripture reading today is Philippians 4, 4 through 13. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me, revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're, uh, this, is the almost, this is the second to last sermon. I'm going to set this here. This is the second to last sermon in our series. We're covering, we'll finish the book of Philippians next week. But this is the highlight of the passage as we've been working through. One of the things we've been doing this fall is to coordinate the passages that we go through on Sunday with our home meeting uh, study. And so we're coming near to the end of that study. And then what will happen is we'll take a break for a few weeks over Christmas as far as coordinating the home meetings with the study, and we'll pick up doing that again with a new study in the beginning of the year. But this is, um, today, I wanted to open by thinking with you about heroes. One of the, one of the things that happens today, particularly, I don't know what to do with a, our beautiful table. Maybe I'll stand here. Let me think. There, I feel like I can see you better, more evenly now. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed today is that heroes are driven by anger or vengeance, right? And so it's their anger and vengeance that drives them. And the, the more ferocious they can be, the more sort of uh, vengeful they can be, the more successful they are. I remember Anne-Marie and I watched at one point the whole of the 24 series and went through. And, it, you know, it's cliffhanger after cliffhanger. Don't do this with DVD because you cannot stop pushing next, the next feature, you know. But we're watching, and I remember it was the end of one of the seasons, and Jack Bauer, you know, is thwarted at every turn. He's trying to get around all of this, and he's trying to save the planet. And um, one of the things that happens is that he comes to, uh, with a bad guy. He's working with a bad guy. He's trying to get some information from him and had learned that the bad guy had really betrayed a lot, 
a lot of him, his friends personally, the whole sort of scenario that was unfolding. And he cocked his head and he smiled and he said, now I'm really angry. Right? And so you know that when Jack Bauer says in 24, now I'm really angry, everything's just going to come undone. So our heroes are portrayed to that. I like Daniel Craig in the, in the 007 movies. I think he's a cool Bond. I really, uh, but he's a tough guy. I mean, you see him move and do the action film. It's, it's all about you don't want to cross this guy. What's interesting, contrasting that, I was thinking about the Lord of the Rings and heroes there. And what's strange, especially if you watch the movies, I recently watched the movies again with Ezra. We go through every once in a while and do the long extended versions. And the heroes there can be facing the worst evil in battle, but yet they're joking, you know? The, uh, the dwarf and the elf who are in the movie and fight side by side or can, like counting how many enemies they're, they're sort of racking up together, how many, how, many, how many victories they have. Well, I have 48. Well, I count 57. You know, it's this kind of thing. Or uh, a quiet moment in the midst of, uh, in the calm before a storm where uh, Gandalf is talking to a hobbit and just assuring him and taking some moment to extend some tenderness. Or other moments where... There's compassion, though there's fierceness of battle. The things that define these characters and these warriors are something different than ferocity. Ferocity is part of battle, certainly, but it's not something that defines these guys. And so I was struck by the differences in heroes. And and we come to our passage today, I wanted to talk about the active role you have with with God guarding your heart, giving peace to your heart. And we're going to talk about three things from this passage. We're going to talk about guard, uh, guard your heart. God wants you to guard, guard your heart, verse 6. He wants you to guard your mind, verse 8. And he wants you to learn contentment, verse 11. So guard your heart, verse 6. Guard your mind, verse 8. And learn contentment, verse 11. Guard your heart, first, verse 6. You have an active role in how you feel. The very, one of the very first things that Paul writes here is, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, when we listen to that, it kind of rubs us the wrong way to think that anxiety and the other emotions that we feel are something that we have any kind of control over. Right? I feel, well, I, I, you know, I can't help it. I'm just that way. One of the things that we'll bring out in this passage is that you can help it. And that's a, that's a powerful message here. You can help it. I'm not the only one who thinks so. I was reading David Brooks' article in the New York Times. David Brooks is an op-ed uh, author for the New York Times. So he writes for other magazines as well. And he had an article recently called The Psych Approach. And the idea is that he's writing about the psychologizing of domestic policy the psychologizing of domestic policy. And he started off with a study. He said, you know, there's a study, there was an older study done where 10 categories of childhood trauma in the 1990s, Vincent Filetti and Robert uh, Robert Anda, conducted a study on adverse childhood experiences. And so they asked about 17,000 people what uh, mostly what to describe what had happened in their experience of any 10 particular categories of childhood and trauma. And what they found is there was a correlation between the more trauma that you experienced as a child, uh, the less well you did in life, the less well you were able to adapt. He writes this, he said, the link between childhood trauma and adult outcomes was striking. 
people with an ACE score, that's the test that, began, that developed out of this, people with an ACE score of four were seven times more likely to be alcoholics as adults than people with an ACE score of zero. They were uh, six times more likely to have had sex before age 15, twice as likely to be diagnosed with cancer, four times as likely to suffer uh, emphysema. People with an ACE score of six were 30 times more likely to have attempted suicide. And later research suggested that only 3% of students with an ACE score of zero had learning or behavioral problems in school at all. Among students with an ACE score of four or higher, 51% had those problems. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line of that early study was this. The childhood stress can have long-lasting neural effects, making it harder to do this, to exercise, self-control, to focus your attention, to delay gratification, and do many other things that contribute to a happy life. All right, so he begins the article there, and then he begins to unpack it a little bit further. He said, in the past several decades, policymakers have focused on the material and bureaucratic things to uh, correlate to school failure, like poor neighborhoods, bad nutrition, schools that are too big or too small. But more recently, attention has shifted to the psychological reactions that impeded learning, the ones that flow from insecure relationship, constant movement, and economic anxiety. And so he writes that schools are now casting about, trying to find psychological programs that will help students work on resilience, equanimity, and self-control. Some schools give two sets of grades, one for academic work and one for deportment. Brooks writes this, when you look over the domestic policy landscape, you see all these different people in different policy silos with different budgets in healthcare, education, crime, poverty, social mobility, and labor force issues. But in their disjointed ways, they're all dealing with the same problem, that across vast stretches of America, economic, social, and family breakdowns are producing enormous amounts of stress and unregulated behavior, which dulls motivation, uh, undermines self-control, and distorts lives. And he finishes the article by writing this, maybe it's time for people in all these different fields to get together in a room and make a concerted push against psychological barriers to success. Now, that's a shift in climate. Because for a long period of time, when we deal with anxiety, we deal with other kinds of emotions, we're told that we can't uh, have anything to do with those. We might medicate, but we, we don't really have control. We're not really able to be effective in and of ourselves. Now, what is important here is that Paul and the Bible said that that's not the case. His command is do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. I wanted to slow that down for you. One of the ways that you can think through Scripture, by the way, and that's something we're gonna, we've been focusing on and will focus on throughout this year, is to slow it down and to take a, a line in Scripture and to just emphasize each of the words. So let's do that. We'll rehearse that a little bit together, and you can take this away and do that yourself. Do. So do not be anxious about anything. Do. That's an active word, right? It has to do with your activity and how you engage with things and with life and with people. Do not. So there's preventative action. You have to work at this in a preventative way, right? Be. Do not be. That deals with your identity. Anxiety can make you have a lot of different reactions, and your reactions in any given circumstance show you who you are. You know, the Bible talks a lot about uh, the people... People being like trees, us being like trees, where we have a root system, we're rooted down into soil, it's either good or bad, and as we're rooted down into good soil, we bear good fruit in our lives. 
And things like anxiety doesn't, don't come out, but things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and so on do. But when you root down into other things, you know, the, the, the essence of rooting down for a Christian is to root down into work of Jesus and what he's done for you. But when you root down into other things, whether it's your career track or your, your significant other or uh, what people think of you or how much you have or what kind of power you're able to exude over your circumstances or control, when you start to root down into those kinds of things, you bear bad fruit. And anxiety is part of that. One of the definitions I heard about anxiety that I really think is important is that anxiety is frustrated passion for omnipotence. What does that mean? It means that you want things to go your way and that there are other things in life that stand in the way of things going your way. And so you get anxious that things won't go your way. All right? Do not be anxious, Paul says. Do not be anxious about. So do not be anxious about. What is it causing concern? You need to examine your life and think about, okay, what am I anxious about? What am I afraid that I'm going without? What am I afraid is going to be taken away from me? Why am I irritable? Right? So think about that and examine yourself and be reflective. So do not be anxious about anything. Whatever. Whoever. Anything. Okay? Some of you are really worried about money. Do not be anxious and worry about money. Some of you are worried about, um, some of you are liking somebody you shouldn't be liking. And you're really concerned with, over-concerned with relationship. Do not be anxious about anything. Okay? Now, you have an active role. One thing that you have to do is put off. You have to put off anxiety. And you can control that. You can, the Lord gives you resources in his Holy Spirit as you come to know him through the gospel to begin to control how you feel. You have an active role in how you feel, right? But also, you have an active role on how you feel, part two. You've got to put on. You've got to put on. And he talks about this. He says in verse 7, sorry, in verse 6, But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So prayer is the second part. So rather than anxiety, thankful dependence upon God is asking for things. And he wants us to do this. What does it mean? What does it mean to be thankfully dependent upon God? Sometimes my daughter, Honor, uh, is hungry. Sometimes, most of the time, she's just really busy with making a new musical or doing something, you know, very sort of uh, creative or writing a story. And I can't get her to eat and I can't get her to drink, but there are times where she really wants something to drink and she really wants something to eat. And so as a parent, I just try to take advantage of that. And I feed her as much as she can possibly eat and I give her as much water as she can possibly drink. Um, She's thankful in those moments. There's a thankful dependence because she's not yet at the age where she can really do it well herself. She can't really put all of those things together herself. She can't choose the things that would nourish her. She would most likely grab a, uh, a candy bar, which wouldn't do the trick. Um, so she's dependent and she's thankful in the way uh, that we supply for her. And that's just a natural part of the relationship. Is your relationship with God like that? When it is... God gives you peace. And what does that mean? 
It means that you are not focused on the other things in life that you think you need to bring you your identity, who you are. It, doesn't, it means that, that, yes, it's important to strive after different things and it's important to go after relationships and good standing, but it means that they don't make or break you, that you have a resource other than your relationship, other than the thing you're searching for, other than, you're, other than the thing you're resting down in. Thankful dependence means rather than being anxious about, oh, I'm not going to get this thing or I will get this thing, your focus is instead on God, the living God, and your relationship with him. And you realize that all things come from him. And you depend on him for that. And you approach him for that. And you ask him for the things that you think you need. But you're going to him first. You're not going to the things he brings first. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. And Paul says that it surpasses the abilities of our minds. The kinds of, what does it look like? The peace that God brings through your dependence upon him, thankfully? It means that you can face anything. We'll get to that shortly. There are great examples of Christians throughout history who have been able to face massive things, whether good or bad, with, uh, with character derived from their relationship with Christ. You know, in the Civil War, or as my friends in the South like to call it, the War of Northern Aggression, there was a general named Stonewall Jackson. Do you know how Stonewall Jackson got his name? He believed in the sovereignty of God, and it meant that he was the same on his horse in the heat of battle, relaxed, calm, commanding, able to direct people well with clear mind, as he was laying in his bed at night with his wife, praying before they went to bed. And people looked on, and they saw this, and that's how he got the nickname Stonewall, because in battle, nothing could move him emotionally. He was just, he was rooted down. He was established in the love of Christ, and that fueled his interaction with everything around him. So God gives peace that surpasses the ability of mind. It's not normal, we think, to be under that kind of pressure and not buckle, let alone stand strong without, kind of, without an anxiety or worry. And we guard the seat of who we are as we have our identities in Christ Jesus. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why? Because as you pray, God assures you in prayer about your identity in Jesus. That's what makes you. That makes, makes you who you are. It says in verse 7, it's the peace of God, God. The peace of God that will guard your hearts. The peace of God will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. The Lord is at hand. Look at this language. What does it mean for the Lord to be at hand? You know, in Scripture, when... when uh, there is battle terminology used, and uh, one of the psalmists is talking about somebody at the king's right hand. The person at the right hand is the, is the person, is the warrior to do battle on, their, on the king's behalf, to stand in for the king, to represent his name, to represent uh, his kingdom in battle. And Jesus has done this, right? Jesus has done this against sin and death. He's done it for his father. He's done it on our, on our behalf. But it means more than that. When Paul says the Lord is at hand, it means something like this. Uh, there's an older movie called Goodwill Hunting, Matt Damon, Robin Williams. And Matt Damon's character plays, is, uh, he plays a character who has been severely abused as a child. Severely abused, really, really beaten up with like wrenches and things. It comes out throughout the storyline, and it's, and it's really awful. And so he's developed this coping mechanism that he uh, 
that he keeps a, a wall around him. And he doesn't really let anybody in to love them, and he won't give himself to love other people, right? And so there's a moment where he's beginning to trust Robin Williams' character, who's playing his counselor. And Robin Williams' character says, you feel like you're alone, Will? And Will, laughing and surprised, what? Do you have a soulmate? Do I have a... Define that. Well, someone who challenges you. Chucky. Yeah, Chucky's family, he'd lie down in traffic for you. I'm talking about someone who opens things up for you, touches your soul. I got it. Well, who? I got plenty. We'll name them. Shakespeare, Nietzsche, Frost, O'Connor, Kant, Pope, Locke. Yeah, that's great. They're all dead. Not to me, they're not. You can't have a whole lot of dialogue with them. You can't get back to them, Will. Well, not without some serious smelling salts and a heater. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You'll never have that kind of relationship in the world where you're always afraid to take the first step because all you see is every negative thing 10 miles down the road. Paul says here the Lord is at hand. He's, he's laid down in traffic for you. He's done that on the cross. He's taken your place. He would do that in an instant, and he did. But he also opens up your soul at the same time. He challenges you. He wants to be intimate with you. That's why Paul says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. What does that mean? I think it's easy to say, well, I'm not sure. You know, this is older text. It's Paul. He's an apostle. He's an old Jewish guy, and he's writing this. He's in prison, and he's talking about rejoicing in the Lord. Do we really know what rejoice means? And my question to you, is it really so hard to get this, to get what it means to rejoice? And so I thought, let's think about it in simple terms. Once the modern World Series began in 1903... It took the Phillies 77 years from that point and 97 years from the club's establishment to win their first World Series, longer than any of the other 16 teams that made up the major leagues for the first half of the 20th century. That 77 years of drought is the fourth longest World Series drought in Major League Baseball history. In 1980, the Phillies won the World Series against Kansas City and again in 2008 against Tampa Bay. If you're a Phillies fan and you were watching those games, what was your disposition when they won? Did you say, well, let me think about this. I'm not really sure what it means to rejoice. What does that mean to contemporary people? It was written so long ago, I just don't know. No, of course not. And that's what Paul writes to you. Rejoice in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice with energy, with power, with passion. Are you directing your life to be in the presence of the Lord? Are you rejoicing in what he's done for you? Are you knowing him on that level? Are you bringing all of your energy to bear on your relationship? Is he the first person you think of in the morning and the last person you say goodnight to as you go to sleep and your head hits the pillow? Is he the person who fuels your thoughts about the day and the things you face and the things things that are weighing you down and your needs? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. Rejoice. Paul has to emphasize it again. I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. So we have to guard our heart. But we also have to guard our mind. How? Friends, we should be thinking and speaking and talking about and reminding each other about the word of the Lord to each other all the time. When the problem comes up and you're talking about it, where's Jesus? 
Are you applying the gospel? Are you talking about it? Are you bringing it to bear? Are you reasoning it out? The Lord wants this of you. The Lord thinks this of you. You have to direct your thoughts. Verse 8. When guarding your mind, one of the things you have to do is direct your thoughts. Verse 8 says, think about these things, okay? These, not this, not that, not the other. These things. What does that mean? Well, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, you go to a rock concert. A lot of great concerts coming through Philly recently. You go to a concert. You know, there's somebody who produces that. Somebody produces that concert. So somebody tells everybody, right down to uh, the people who are running concession, what to do and how to do it. Somebody's directing it. And that's exactly what you have to do. You have to break down your thoughts when they come. You have to think about these things that Paul's talking about here. And the other kinds of things, you have to evaluate them. Is this not an excellent thing? Is this not a praiseworthy thing? Is this not a good thing? I'm going to reject that thought. I'm going to work against that thought. That's what he talks about. So you have to think about these things. You also have to evaluate, verse 8, whatever is. One of the things I've been saying since I've come is we have to get used to thinking and acting and speaking to one another the way that Jesus speaks to us. We have to speak to ourselves in our own head, in our own hearts, the way that Jesus speaks to us. When you are struggling and you're cast down and you are worried and you're anxious and the thoughts start to become darker about yourself, I'm not any good or I don't have the friends that I want or I'm worried that this won't work out whatever this is is the way that you're talking to yourself inside your head the way that Jesus speaks to you do you hear the words well done good and faithful servant do you hear the words you're beloved do you hear the words I laid down my life for you Do you hear the words, heaven is for you. The gates are open, and the gates of hell can't prevail against that. I've secured it. Have the words, it is finished, touched your heart so that you can pour yourself out in firm knowledge that you are his, and he is yours, and nothing in heaven and earth can separate you from that. Is that the way that you evaluate your thoughts? It's not just that you have to direct them. And you have the ability to do that. You have to evaluate them. Is this the right thought? Should I be thinking this way? Is this what should be running through my mind? Is this how Jesus talks to me? Who is he? What does he have to say? How does he speak to me? What does he do in this kind of situation? Because he stood in for you and you're in him. And so you've got to understand that you have to evaluate. Are you worried about losing someone when there's no evidence? Is that lovely? Is that excellent? Is that praiseworthy? I've talked to more than one guy who've had reoccurring dreams that they murdered someone when they didn't. Right? That they murdered someone when they didn't. And they woke up not being able to shake the guilty, anxious feeling. Is that the way that Jesus speaks? Evaluate it evaluate it and don't stand for it if it is not flowing from the gospel 
But you've got to know your word. You've got to know Jesus through your word. This is why it's here. You've got to make it a habit, a part of your life together, individually. And then verse 8, you have to search. If there's anything, right, you have to search if there's anything. One of the things that a mentor of mine told me about being married, he said, look, marriage is not just a walk in the park. There's real hard things that you have to do together because there'll be moments in your life where you're enemies to one another. And you know, when the scripture says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, there'll be, some, there'll be a day when you're that for one another. So marriage doesn't solve all of that. But one of the things you want to do when you're upset about your spouse and what, what they're doing wrong or how they're doing this wrong or how they're doing that wrong is go in, going to the Lord in prayer and for every one thing that you're upset about, find three things about them to give thanks and praise for to the Lord in prayer and see if the disposition of your heart doesn't change. So you have to, you have to search them out. Sometimes you have to find if there's anything there you take an active role in what you think, but you're also taking an active role in showing others uh, how you think and what the gospel means to you. Verse 5 says, Let your reasonableness, reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. You evaluate what is good. You've searched for it. Your guarding your mind in this way brings balance to your life. Why? Because your every thought belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you. You were bought with a price doesn't belong to you. Paul says later in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This kind of taking thought captive, finally brothers, think on these things, starts inside your own head first. It starts inside your own head first. So do not be anxious. Guard your heart. Guard your mind. But lastly, learn contentment. Verse 11, I've learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. The truth is that the gospel worked out in our lives is opposite of what we think. Don't you think that we should just come about contentment naturally? You know, attain the, the state of contentment. Um, right? But it doesn't work like that. And you know this. You know that you've lived life without contentment. You have to learn it. Uh, There's all kinds of good opportunity to do it. Verse 12, in any and every circumstance, he says, I've learned. So what do you do when you learn something? What do you do? What has to happen? One thing that has to happen is repetition. I was learning a new piece on the guitar recently. I played it ad nauseum because you have to develop the motor muscle memory to go right from that chord to that chord or this line to that line. And when it's new and it's not something, a way that you're used to playing, it takes extra time. Or uh, we're learning a Christmas carol with the kids together and we're going to do four-part harmony. And the kids are musical and so they're learning the lines nicely, but sometimes they mess up because it takes time. And some of them are complicated. It takes time. It takes rehearsing them, going over them again and again, getting those lines in your voice. Some of them are chromatic and out of place. doesn't sound like the melody at all. You have to hold tight to the harmony because the harmony itself is tight. You have to do it over and over again. Right? You can expect... This in many disciplines. You can expect this in all of life. Kung fu. (laughs) When you're learning kung fu, 
you have to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And the thing that makes Kung Fu work is that you're training your body to react in a way that you wouldn't normally react because the way you'd normally react is off and will put you in danger, right? You've got to do it when you cook. I always ate my own mistakes, you know? It accelerates the learning process. I recommend it, sort of. Um, You'll move faster in learning to cook, but you've got to do it over and over again. A friend of mine said, uh, you've got to cook a thousand tomato sauces before you really get one that's, that's right on. I think that's about right. So you can expect this kind of learning to be part of your life when it comes to being content. Are you feeling guilty because you're lacking contentment? Are you feel guilty about anything that I'm saying this morning? Don't. Your Lord is patience. And he's promised to complete the work that he's begun in you. Don't feel guilty. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. He's taken that away. So what's left? You can approach God in freedom of relationship. And you can grow in these ways. And it's going to take falling down. And it's going to take making mistakes. And it's going to take practice. And it's going to take one another giving each other feedback. Saying, hey, you did pretty well. Or I see progress in you. Keep going. And rooting each other on. But don't expect to be a guru. Christianity is the antithesis of guru. Christianity is a bunch of people in need of help, helping a bunch of people in need of help. With a God who became, who was so large, who became small, so that we could be made big in time, in his name, through his sacrifice. Contentment takes know-how is one of the last things you need to see here. Verse 12, I know how. I know how. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. We feel often that life just happens, that we just have to roll with it. But both the hard things and the good things, Paul says here, take know-how. You've got to learn it. You've got to know how to handle the rich blessings that come into your life. You've got to take learning and know-how to handle the problems and the, and the pains and the suffering that comes into your life. Whether you're brought low or whether you're abounding, expect a journey. It takes know-how. Well, how do you do it? How do you get the strength for this? Paul leaves us with that too. He says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's strengthened by the Lord. Friends, the gospel is this in a nutshell. The one who had the most guarded heart, he kept God's word pure in his heart. He kept it purely and robustly and fully. When he's praying in the last moments as he's dying on the cross, he's quoting and praying psalms, which was the church's prayer book for years and years and years and years and years. It's how they worshipped. It's how they sang. And he's doing that in his last moments of life, his last breaths. He's praying. So his heart was guarded. His mind was guarded. He was able to withstand temptation. He was able to do it and appeal to what he knew was true. He was able to walk in line with the truth of who God is and who he was and his identity in him as our representative And he who was perfectly content, who knew perfect community, perfect contentment, perfect peace, perfect relationship, no hindrance in the amount of love that you can show and receive, no hindrance in the communication or misunderstanding, no uh, division, 
absolute unity. He who was perfectly content lost all of those things so that you could be. Where do you get the strength for this? He strengthens you. Why? Because he lost everything so that you could be blessed with the riches of all things. He's making you into something glorious right now through one another, through your relationship with him. Don't squander these hard-won riches. You have an embarrassment of riches. You can eat at the feast, the banquet table every day, but you won't come into the dining room and sit down like a friend or family member. You're nibbling at the, the dry crackers without even any cheese on them at the door in the entryway, and you're hanging out in the back saying, I don't, I don't know, can I come in? Don't do that. He spreads his arms and he says, come into my presence without fear. Come humbly yet boldly because I've made a way for you. You can eat with me. You can drink with me. You can be a part of my family because I've made it so. Not you, because I've made it so. Come in, eat and drink. So thinking back through in summary, the first thing we want to do is guard our hearts. Verse 6. The key point is that you have an active role in how you feel in life. Remember that. How are you feeling? How are you going to be feeling this week? Bring this up. Remember it. Verse 6, guard your heart. Second, guard your mind. Verse 8, the key point is that you have an active role in how you think. How many times have you been wandering down the road and been thinking to yourself and your thoughts are just wandering and you're processing things inside and... Not once did you think to turn those thoughts into prayer. Not once did your faith come into it. Not once did who Jesus is and what he's done come into it. But you're just running down your own train of thought. At very least, try this. Turn it into prayer this week. Guard your thoughts. And then third, learn contentment. Verse 11, the key point is that contentment doesn't just fall upon you. At least not often. It can. It really can. The Lord's Spirit is powerful and does that sometimes. But the the regular journey for most every day and most every moment is it has to be learned. And that takes repeated action. And that takes falling down together. And it takes getting up together and helping one another up and pointing each other to Jesus. The Lord is with you. And he loves you. And he's making you into who you're meant to be in him. Trust him. Trust him with that. Let him touch your soul. He's already laid down in traffic for you. Let him touch your soul. So what should we be doing this week? Just quickly. We should be speaking the good things of the gospel to each other. And not just at our home group and in our home group time, our home meeting time. Daily. Look for ways that the gospel fits. Celebrate it. Lift it up for yourself internally, for your friends around you, for your family, for your co-workers, your colleagues, for those that you don't get along with. Speak the good things of the gospel. Another thing we can do, do not be anxious. Keep a journal this week. Write down every time you feel anxious. Think about why. Think about the, the Lord's command through Paul here to us. Do not be anxious about anything. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Remember that he's at hand. And then finally, read this passage this week, every day. Would you do that? Would you take time and read this passage, this one that we just reviewed today, in your own quiet time, in your home meeting? Go over it. Pray through it. 
Make it a part of your life. Everyone is in agreement. This, this is the high point, the high part of this letter to the church and to us. Soak it in. Memorize it. Meditate on it. David once said, I've hidden your word in, your heart, in my heart that I might not sin against you. Will you do that? Will you hide his word in your heart? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Let's pray. Let's guard our hearts. Let's guard our minds. And let's learn contentment together as we walk in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have not left us alone. You have not left us orphaned or abandoned or alienated or to ourselves or struggling under the weight of things that we cannot affect or have control over. You have given us a peace that can guard our hearts, that can transcend our understanding and guard our minds and guard our lives. And so we now seek you to work in us the work of your Holy Spirit to help us to flourish in the ways that we need to flourish. Teach us, Lord. We would learn from you. We would seek you for who you are in and of yourself and not just for what you bring. We know, Lord, that it's okay to seek you for what we need. And you've encouraged us to do that here too in this passage. But we want to know you. And through all things, we want to seek you first and you foremost because you sought out us. You became one of us. You lived and died and you were raised from the dead so that we could come to you. Now, boldly, freely, thank you for this Advent season to take time to remember that. Be with us now as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.